What big eyes you have! The big bad wolf says, What better to see you, my dear? I guess that assuages little Red's fears, and she enters the home. But after a while, she notices something else that's not quite right. Grandmother, what big ears you have? The grandmother says, Oh, better to hear you with, my dear. Time passes, little Red doesn't leave, don't lie, not given the reason, foolishness. Finally, one more thing jumps out. Why, grandmother, what big teeth you have. And all the better to eat you, my dear, and she gobbles her up. <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood. Strange story, scary story. The moral being, beware of wolves dressed as grandmothers. <laughs> but kids and adults, I don't want you to make the same mistake as Little Red Riding Hood. Jesus warned us of those who in Matthew 7 he described as wolves in sheep's clothing who come to you and appear beneficial, spiritually encouraging, but in the end only desire to gobble you up. This morning we're continuing our series through Paul's letter to Titus and He's got some serious words here for us. I hope you see this morning that God's people, that's me and you, God's people have a responsibility to identify and reject false teaching. God's people have a responsibility to identify and reject false teaching. We've got to be better than Little Red Riding Hood, who noticed something was off but didn't do anything about it. We've got to identify and reject false teaching. So I hope you got your Bible, and if you do, why don't you go ahead and open it up to Titus chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, there's these things called phones. They've got apps. Open your app and turn to Titus 1 and look at the book with us. God's Word has all the answers. So Titus chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 10. Titus 1, verse 10. Paul continues his letter to his young protege, and he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sword and gain. One of themselves a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And though they profess to know God, by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Hey, will y'all pray with me? 
God in heaven, we see your word this morning. And we understand that you would call us to identify and reject false teaching. God, pray that you'd give me clarity and wisdom and you'd guide us by your spirit into truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If y'all haven't been with us the past few weeks, we've been working our way through Titus's, or Paul's letter to Titus. This is our third week. And so uh, last week we saw Paul's instruction to Titus to appoint elders in every city on the island of Crete. These elders or overseers were called to be the leaders of God's people, the church. And we're to exemplify what it means to live for Jesus. They're supposed to have an upstanding character and to be above reproach. Now, when we left off last week, we looked at verse 9, which wasn't so much concerned about who these elders and overseers were. That's not their character, but about what they were supposed to do. And I ran out of time, and my wife told me not to tell y'all when I'm running out of time, because you may not know. But I told you I was running out of time, and so I wanted to just connect for you verse 9 and verse 10. Paul says that one of the necessary qualifications for these elders is that they hold fast to the teaching. They're going to hold fast to the gospel because they're going to exhort people in sound doctrine and they're going to refute those who speak against it. And apparently, the need to refute those who spoke against the gospel was not a hypothetical situation on the island of Crete. Paul wasn't preparing for some unforeseen circumstance down the road. He wasn't hedging his bets. He was identifying that as a needful characteristic because verse 10, he says, there were already many present among them who were contradicting the gospel. And so the first thing Paul does for Titus as he continues this letter is identify the false teachers that God's leaders would have to refute. And he goes through it in, in multiple ways. You could think about it in different angles. Instead of working verse by verse through this, I kind of wanted to pull it all together and ask the who, what, where questions. And so if you were trying to track Paul's letter to Titus and you were to ask him, okay, who are these false teachers? He nails it down in pretty specific terms. He says, first off, they're rebellious. The men Paul has in mind refuse to follow God's rules. They rebel against his authority. He calls them in verse 10, empty talkers, men who are full of hot air, Got a lot of words to say. There's not a lot of meat there. Just smacking their gums. He calls them deceivers. You know, in the Bible, being a deceiver is not a good thing. It's a terrible thing to lead people astray by giving the appearance of truth only to pull one over on them. He says in verse 10 that they're of the circumcision. So they're apparently Jewish teachers on the island of Crete who are refuting the gospel, speaking against the gospel. In verse 16, Paul says, they profess to know God. So, these aren't men outside the church. These are rebellious, deceiver, empty talkers in the church. They profess to know God. But their lives are totally devoid of any good thing. They're worthless, he says, for any good deed. Furthermore, he tells us why these false teachers are speaking against the gospel. In verse 11, he says, they teach things they shouldn't teach for the sake of sordid gain. These are the mirror image 
of the leaders Paul identified in verses 5 through 9. Whereas the elders and overseers are called to be men above reproach, embodying the truth of the gospel. These false teachers that Paul has in mind, that Titus is supposed to refute, that these elders are supposed to guard against, are their mirror image. Where the elders are above reproach, these men are detestable. The word for detestable means they're an abomination to God and worthless for every good deed. Paul identifies the false teachers real quick, and he shows the harm they're causing. Verse 11, he says, they are upsetting whole households. We're reading through the book of Acts right now in our year-long Bible reading plan, and you may have picked up on it, but many of the churches that the apostles founded on their journeys met in homes. And when Paul tells Titus they're upsetting whole households, he either means one of two things. Either entire families are being led astray by these false teachers and are abandoning the gospel by their influence, or they're leading the entire church that meets in someone's home astray. In either case, Paul tells Titus they've got to be silenced because of the harm they're calling, causing. And I wish we knew exactly what they were teaching. We've done the who, the why, now we're to the what. We don't know exactly what they're teaching, but Paul indicates in verse 14 that it has something to do with Jewish myths. That they read the stories of the Old Testament and create all kind of fanciful interpretations of what might have been happening in the background. And that's the essence of their teaching, are these Jewish myths and the commandments of men. Verse 15, Paul says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And I think he's implying there that whatever they're teaching, they are obsessed with purity. And you put all this together, and the identification of these false teachers is pretty clear. Here you've got a bunch of men who are living ungodly lives, and yet claiming to be spiritual authorities. And God's people are being led astray. That's the situation on the island of Crete. And I wish that this had been a localized problem. You know, someplace far away from here, a long time ago, God's people were being led astray. But you probably know that false teaching was a problem that was pervasive in the New Testament church. Of course, Jesus, like I mentioned earlier, he did warn his people about them. He warned them of those who would come as wolves in sheep's clothing, who would lead people astray. And that happened pretty quickly. As the apostles preached, people found an opportunity to use the gospel for their own ends. And so we read the story of Simon Magus, a man in Samaria who was a sorcerer. When the apostles came through preaching the gospel and demonstrating their authority by the works of the Spirit, Simon said, hey, how much is it going to cost me to get some of what you got? And of course, he was rebuked by Peter. He said, you can't buy this. You're cursed forever. Everywhere the apostles went, there were opportunities for people latching on to the gospel to use it for their own ends. But one of the ones that hurts my heart the most is what the apostle Paul said to his friends in Ephesus, 
as he was making his way back to Jerusalem for the last time as a free man in the book of Acts, he stopped off in the city of Ephesus, or at the coast, called down for the pastors from the church in Ephesus to come and meet him on the coast to have a final, you know, meeting together. And in Acts 20, verse 28, he solemnly warns them. And these are pastors. Okay, think about it from my, my perspective for a second. These are pastors, Paul's warning. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And Paul identifies these false teachers for Titus because it was a problem they were dealing with in the moment. And so they needed clear apostolic instruction about the cause for concern. But it wasn't a problem localized to Crete. It was everywhere false teachers arose seeking to lead the people of God astray. But thankfully, things have gotten better. We're not troubled by that today, are we? <laughs> no. Church history doesn't give us a picture of upward progress until we all attain to some kind of perfect clarity of doctrine. Instead, as we look through the history of the church, we see almost endless splintering as God's people are led astray by all kinds of false teachers. Jesus said that one of the signs of the end of times would be that many false prophets would arise and mislead many. That's Matthew, 4, uh, Matthew 24, verse 11. And Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, that the Spirit explicitly says, the Spirit of God explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. The world is characterized by all kinds of false teaching coming up from within the church and outside the church, all sorts of new philosophies, life hacks, that are supposed to help you get a leg up in your spiritual relationship with Jesus. They advocate all sorts of extra commandments that are never found in God's Word. And people buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. Used to, it'd be televangelists coming to you live from the Crystal Cathedral. Now you got YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. Seems like everybody has an opportunity to say whatever they want to say and to gain a following. And in doing so, God's people are endlessly led astray. Church, this morning, you need to know, we have a responsibility to clearly identify false teaching. And so I want to give you some characteristics that, that define false teaching in every age. Are you ready to write these down? These are, these are, you test these and see if these are true. Number one, the first common feature of all false teaching those espousing it claim to be Christians. 100% of the time. If they came to you and said, hey, I'm a Buddhist. You should follow 
my teaching? You'd say, no way. I'm a Christian, not a Buddhist. They came to you and said, I'm a Muslim. I've got four pillars that are going to make it possible for you to enter paradise with great rewards. You'd say, no, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm a Christian. But what do you say when a person claiming to be a Christian starts teaching all kinds of things? 100% of the time, false teachers come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. They claim to be Christians. Number two, false teachers always minimize Scripture and claim spiritual insight and divine authority for their message. Sometimes they say things like, God told me that this is what he wants for us today. Or, God showed me in a vision. No doubt, the people on the island of Crete had to deal with something like that. They were abandoning what the apostles taught, what we would call today the scriptures, for all sorts of inventive things. Things they had discovered for themselves, claiming spiritual insight and divine authority. God wants you to do this and not that. False teachers always minimize scripture. False teachers promise Greater enlightenment, more freedom, certainty of salvation, or material blessing if you'll follow their teaching. Yes, they, follow, they, they promise greater enlightenment than you can get by just going to church, than just by reading your Bible. That's good, but if you really want to go deep in God, you got to do this. They promise you greater freedom. We're 21st century people. God knows we're not bound by those things written a long time ago. Release yourself from that burden. Experience the freedom that comes with a new kind of Christianity. They promise a certainty of salvation. How do you know that you're a Christian? Well, it's not just by the promise of God that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but it's by the evidence. Or if you're really a Christian, you'll do this. Or, of course, they always seem to promise material blessing. Sow a seed of faith and receive your reward. That's false teaching. Number four, they downplay the cross, Jesus, and coming judgment in favor of what's happening right now. No false teacher ever would tell you that you don't need the cross. The ones who really want to deceive you, they'll acknowledge it, but they'll downplay it. And so you got to move beyond that. That you got to discover what the Spirit is doing in this moment. But you know, when Paul came into a town, he said, the only thing I made it known among you was Christ Jesus and Him crucified. False teachers always minimize the cross. They have no place for it because on the cross, Jesus said, it's finished. The work is done. But they want you to do more and more. And last but not least... False teachers always seem to have passionate followers and enjoy widespread popularity. And this is the only way that false teachers can be effective. If we could quarantine false teachers, isolate them from the rest of humanity, they'd die and they'd fizzle out. But instead, false teachers get book deals and end up on bestsellers lists. They get the golden play button on YouTube they have the most followers and the widest influence on social media. And so unsuspecting Christians see their friends talking about a book or 
listening to a sermon, and they see that, wow, this video has been viewed 10 million times. No way 10 million times, or no, no way 10 million people are deceived, are there? There must be something good here. Nobody would buy this book if it was all garbage. And so Christians are deceived and led astray through the passionate followers and widespread popularity of false teachers. So it doesn't matter if it's Jewish myths being spread in the first century or if it's postmodern philosophy disguised as Christianity. All the time, God's people are under a constant onslaught of false teachers, and it's our responsibility to clearly identify it. Like Little Red Riding Hood, we take a look at the sermon. We read the book, and we say, Wow, grandmother, what big eyes you have. We know something's not quite right, but there's enough there that keeps us on so we press in a little further. Why, grandmother, what big ears you have? That doesn't quite sound right. But hey, can 10 million people be deceived until finally the wolf has us where he wants us and he gobbles us up? Church, for the sake of your soul and for your family, learn to identify false teaching. And when you do, reject it. See, Paul wasn't content with just saying there are some bad guys out there spewing some lies. He said, when you see those men, verse 11, silence them. They must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. The Greek word for silence is the, this is the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. It means to gag their mouths or to put a muzzle on them or to put a bridle in their mouth like a horse. Tell them to shut up. Now, I can only imagine, excuse my French, children. We don't let our kids say that one. Got in trouble. Can you imagine how amazing it would have been to witness a true apostolic silencing session? You know, I, I don't imagine that Paul went easy on anybody. In fact, he says that when Peter came down from Antioch, or from Jerusalem to Antioch, to see the work of God among the Gentiles, that he freely ate with Gentile believers. And yet when James sent down some brothers to see what was going on, Peter got intimidated because they were the true believers. These were Jewish men who still lived according to the law and found it difficult to believe that somebody of Peter's stature would ever eat with a Gentile. And so Peter stopped eating with his Gentile brothers and sisters, withdrew from table fellowship, Paul said it got so bad that even his buddy Barnabas was led astray. And so here's Paul, recently converted, teacher in the Antioch church, standing up at mealtime. Everybody gathering around. He says he confronted Peter to his face. He said, we're not Gentile sinners by birth, but we know that one's not saved by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Peter, who do you think you are? laying a burden on God's people that he didn't lay. Now, I imagine if any of us had seen Paul get after one of his opponents, we would have been hard-pressed to find what we consider love in him. He silenced him. No place for it. Too dangerous. It's not okay to allow false teachers to go teaching 
because we're afraid of confrontation. We don't want to be seen as the bad guy. Paul tells Titus they must be silenced or else more of God's people will be led astray. Now the first priority when it comes to false teaching in the church is to hashtag stop the spread. Stop the spread. We shut down our church for eight weeks last year for COVID. What would we do if there was false teaching present in our church? Paul says to silence them. Don't give them opportunity to speak. And then he says down in verse 13 that they need to be reproved severely. Reproof is never comfortable. To be publicly rebuked like Peter was, none of us would volunteer for that. If you ever get corrected at work, you know how difficult that can be. Imagine that it's a spiritual authority who calls you out for false teaching. That would almost be humiliating. But Paul adds to it, severely. Rebuke them severely. Why? So that they may be sound in the faith. See, here's the thing about rejecting false teaching. God's not after a bunch of heresy hunters. He's not looking for us to develop the theological acumen to perform a theological takedown. He's not after powerful apologetics. What God wants from his people when it comes to false teaching is a deep enough love for a person who professes to know Jesus that we do the hard thing of confronting them where they deviate from the truth. Didn't matter how Paul identified them as rebellious, deceivers, empty talkers. He says they're an abomination to God and they're worthless for every good deed. But he had hope that even a false teacher like this is not beyond the pale of God's grace. That perhaps through your rebuke, Titus, they'd come back to the truth. And that was Paul's desire. Paul's desire wasn't to excommunicate people left and right and to humiliate false teachers. Paul's desire at the end of the day was to see God's people flourish and to become all that God desired for them to be. And he knew the one thing that would prevent them from that was the presence of false teaching in their midst. So maybe you're not a Christian and you're here this morning. You are a Christian, but you just struggle to see what the big deal is. Why go on and on and on about false teaching? Why make a big deal out about theological points? Why, why, what's the big deal? Well, unlike almost every other world religion, Christianity is built on the principle that we're not saved by what we do. We don't earn our way to God through a lifetime of obedience. But instead, we're saved by grace through faith in a message that must be preached. That somebody somewhere has to stand up and communicate words. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if false teachings allowed to percolate and to spread so that the true gospel message, which alone is able to save a person, is drowned out by false teaching, no one will be saved. Instead, they'll be led astray. They'll be led away from God. And so at the end of the day, the deal is that if we lose the acorn of faith, we'll never experience the growth that comes from it. 
And so Paul gave Titus this task, not only identifying false teachers, but of rejecting them, of publicly silencing them and rebuking them severely. And today, I believe pastors have a unique responsibility to guard God's people from false teaching. And Paul calls them in Ephesians chapter 4, shepherd teachers. And there's an element of that, that pastors are called to watch over God's people as a shepherd watches over a flock, leading them to green pastures and feeding them on God's word. But he's also to have his eyes open to the threats that may come into the church, to be aware of wolves and to run them off if necessary. So pastors have that responsibility. But you know, all of God's people are required to assess teaching and reject it if it's false. Why don't you turn with me to 1 John 4. First John 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that it's coming, and now it's already in the world. You're from God, little children, and you've overcome them, because greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. They're from the world, and so they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and he who knows God listens to us. He who's not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John gives his church's criteria according to which they can evaluate teaching. He tells them, do they center their message on Jesus? Do they say Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh or not? He says, if they don't say that, reject them. They're not from God, whatever else they say. Whatever other positive influence their teaching may have, they are not from God. Reject them out of hand. They're from the world. And the world listens to them. But then he holds himself up, him and his friends, who saw Jesus with their own eyes and who had planted all these churches that were founded on the apostles and the prophets. And he said, we are from God. Listen to us. Those who are from God, listen to us. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. First Thessalonians 
Paul says, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Ask yourself, do I examine everything carefully? Do you examine everything carefully? It's not enough to recognize it as false teaching. Do you hold fast to what's good and abstain from every form of evil? See, if it's our responsibility to identify false teaching, you and I are not going to have problem finding stuff to evaluate. It's everywhere. We're inundated with information. Sometimes it's the information overload, and we just detach and let it pass over us. We forget to evaluate. But the Apostle Paul says we must identify false teaching and reject it. And so this morning, reject false teaching. Commit yourself to evaluating everything and to holding fast to only that which is good. I've told you, what God is after from us is not a bunch of heresy hunters, theological takedowns, powerful apologists. It's not what he wants. Paul says in verse 16, to the pure, everything is pure. And when he thought about those churches that he had planted and labored for in Crete, when he thought about those people that Titus was presently overseeing and was looking for elders to shepherd them, he knew that among them, there were genuine, godly people who had given themselves wholeheartedly to the gospel of Jesus. And he was concerned that they were going to be led astray. And so he includes this beautiful phrase, to the pure, all things are pure. Because the deal is, to truly reject false teaching, we must be grounded in the truth of the gospel and to allow that to shape our thinking. That's the key. To be so rooted to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that He has washed us by His Spirit and made us new, that in Him we are pure, that we are justified and declared righteous in God's sight, that we have no need for anything to come on top of that, any commandments that any other teacher might would lay on us, that in Christ we are pure, and for us all things are pure. Paul says that is the way we reject false teaching. By holding fast to what is good. This morning I wonder, do you know that gospel? Are you hoping in that gospel? The reason false teaching has such a heyday in our world is because our world is not short of broken people who are looking for solutions. You look around us, you, you turn on the TV, you turn on the news, you see brokenness everywhere. Every headline is like another pit in your stomach. For some of us, we get trapped in that brokenness. And we try to solve our brokenness ourselves. We try to pursue all sorts of things that we think are going to make us happy. We start to find all sorts of philosophies and worldviews and life hacks and practices and habits that we think are going to make us the people we've always longed to be. But our problem is not that we continue to make bad choices, or that we don't know the right thing, that we haven't discovered that perfect somebody, but that we've rebelled against the God who made us. The God who created us with a perfect design in mind. 
that he intended for us to live with him in perfect fellowship and harmony forever, completely supplied with every good thing we need so that brokenness wouldn't even be in the picture. But we rebel against his authority and we go our own way and we end up with the results. Death and destruction everywhere we turn. That's why false teaching is everywhere. But God saw us in our brokenness. And he loved us. And he sent his own son, Jesus, to be the savior of the world. To live a perfect life according to God's design and to fulfill every righteous requirement of God's law. And then to offer himself up willingly as a sacrifice on the cross, not as a perfect example of what selfless love looks like, but as a willing sacrifice for sinners like me and you. That he died on the cross in our place, suffering the penalty that our sins deserve. And they buried him in a tomb. But three days later, God raised his son up from the dead, vindicating before everybody who was there, testifying that he really was his son, that he was a good man, that he'd been sent to do exactly what he had done and to extend an invitation to you. That if you turn from your sins in repentance and trust him in faith, you wouldn't have to figure it out on your own. You wouldn't have to turn to every new teaching that comes along, every new headline on the front of those magazines that are so glossy at H-E-B. That you'd know beyond a shadow of a doubt that to the pure, all things are pure. That if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old brokenness has passed away. The new has come. That if you'll turn to him in faith, you can be restored to God's design for you and you can live in perfect harmony and fellowship with God. Then you won't be led astray by every new thing that comes along. Every teacher won't be in your ear trying to promise you get spiritually fit quick schemes. You'll know that you are who God has created you to be, living as God created you to live. You want to reject false teaching? You got to hold on to that message with all that you've got. False teaching is false teaching because it deviates from that. So this morning I wonder, do you know the gospel of Jesus like that? You might ask yourself, are you living a life of brokenness or are you living according to God's design? It's that simple. There's two ways. Are you living in your brokenness or are you living according to God's design for your life? I wonder if you're living in brokenness this morning. What is keeping you from repenting of your sins and trusting Christ and experiencing the restoration and renewal that he promises to give you? His word says that if anybody confesses their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of their sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says if anybody calls on his name, they'll be saved. Would you do that this morning? Would you repent of your sins and experience a restoration to God's design for your life. But then I know, because I've been there, that the problem for many of us is not that we don't know the gospel, but that we have been led astray in various ways by false teaching. We've let go of the essentials, and we've added to it with all sorts of things that moment by moment, even imperceptibly, have led us one step farther away from simple faith and trust in Jesus. 
Church, I don't know what you're looking for. I don't know what secret thing you're hoping to find. But all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. That there is nothing beyond him. He's the fullness of God and he is the fullness of God for you. This morning, would you rediscover who Jesus is as the fullness of God? Require some soul searching, a willingness to reconform your thought patterns to the ways of God, to really evaluate everything carefully and to ask yourself, have I inadvertently along the way started to believe or act in ways that are contrary to the simple truth that God loves me in Jesus and there's nothing more I can do to earn that love? Be free from your burden. False teaching promises life but only brings death. So this morning, repent of your sins. Repent of false thinking. Be renewed in your mind and come back to Jesus. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a symbol for us of this beautiful gospel that the Lord Jesus offered himself up, his own body, as a sacrifice for sinners. Church, I don't know what you've been dealing with this week. Perhaps you've been weighed down by events in your life. Maybe you feel like you have stumbled in your pursuit of Christ. But can we take a few minutes to do what the Apostle Paul tells us to do and examine ourselves, even examine ourselves carefully? To know, are we trusting Jesus to save us from our sins? If we are, in a few moments when we partake, I invite you to partake with us. But if you're not, you don't know that Jesus has saved you, that you don't know that you're trusting in him, now would be a perfect time to talk to somebody about it. Mike and the band are going to come, and Mike's just going to play softly for a minute while we prayerfully examine ourselves. And if I can, if I can help you process any of that, any of the self-examination that comes from identifying and rejecting false teaching. If I can help you know how to follow Jesus, how to receive his salvation, I want to do that. Maybe you know Jesus, but you don't belong to a church and you want to join our church. I'd love to talk with you about that, but can we examine ourselves most of all before we partake of the supper together? Let's bow our heads and do that.